more of a foundation and something you can send to people and what makes us who we are. So with that, gentlemen, welcome <laughs> to the drop. Today is VFX for Geniuses here at DFT. Uh, we say that with, yet again, as much humility as we can muster, but if there is a department in DFT that it is very increasingly difficult to be humble about, it is the VFX department. Headed by Dylan Shadinsky, our head of VFX. Carlo, I think we just gave you a fancy new title not that long ago. Yes, I am the senior visual effects artist now. You are the senior visual effects artist. Yeah. Uh, so a little bit about Dylan. Let's start there, because Dylan, you're on what? You're 19? Yep. 19 and some change. 19 and some change. Uh, Rami actually gave me a little bit of a fun story. Is it true that you started on Flame? No. Not at all. OK, no. cool. That was Shake, right? <laughs> no, it was After Effects. Really? Yeah. Since day oh, wow. one. Yeah. I mean, I was always using After Effects for things here and there, um, but uh, it wasn't until uh, Scrubs started asking for like little last minute VFX cleanup that uh, I really dove into it, I'd say. So that would have been season three of Scrubs. Well, and you're celebrating mm. three years. You just passed three years at DFT? Yes, that's right. You, you had Nuke still, so we're still kind of something of a hybrid of Nuke and After Effects, but we're largely Nuke at this point, would mm -hmm. you guys say? Yes. And you came in with Nuke skills, yeah? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't say I was like a pro yet, though. <laughs> there are some things I still had to figure out, like, you know, copying channels and like, you know, uh, just, you know, working within different color channels that Nuke really specializes in. Mm -hmm. And After Effects is, you know, is, you know, node-based versus layer-based, and it's a just a little bit different. So you came in power ready on After Effects, though? Yes. I've been using After Effects since like senior year of college. Very cool. Well, something interesting, because recently I had to kind of put all of that together for a potential client. You were talking about titles and things like that. Mm -hmm. You've done some really cool stuff. You are the hand in the doozer drawing. I am the hand, <laughs> yes. You are, correct. you are the hand. Uh, you had a hand in the Weeds main title, yeah? Yeah, in the in season three, I think of Weeds, they stopped doing like the full uh, Little Houses main title, and they switched to morphing pot leaves. So basically, there would be uh, like an object in a room or a sign that had something else on it that would then morph into uh, a pot leaf. What I'm really most interested in, and once again. Ladies and gentlemen, I will get Krista Miller on this podcast. <laughs> Cougar Town, mm -hmm. <laughs> just tell me the whole story, because uh, that's a main title that changed 948 times. Right? Yeah, uh, it changed every episode, I think, uh, at least after a certain point. Um, yeah, the uh, the creators of the show had an idea to do like a Florida tourism map, um, since it's all in Florida, um, and they basically just threw me some references and, and, you know, ask for basically a simple map of Florida that they could zoom in on and say Cougar Town. Um, and then it was all basically built from scratch from there. Uh, just drawing a lot of little two frame cell animations of various alligators and oranges and other Florida type things. And then uh, doing a little camera flying. Is there any Easter eggs in there? Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm the water skier. 
stop. Yeah. <laughs> We're gonna need an episode number on that one. You'd really have to zoom in pretty far on like a ultra HD TV, but uh, yeah. Well, speaking of which, because uh, I want to start unpacking some of our shows, but um, I'm gonna I, number one, thank you guys for letting me play a little bit this year more in your mm -hmm. department, getting to sit on uh, VFX spotting sessions for head of the oh, class. Yeah. It's always appreciated. You know we're underwater when they send me. <laughs> but that was kind of fun in learning even how much detail you guys are actually focusing in on. So we'll go through the shows. Uh, head of the class, current, head of the class, Ted Lasso, Home Economics, the Connors, Manifest. We did VFX for Cruel Summer. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, there's so many. I don't even think you said NCISLA. I didn't say <laughs> NCISLA. Uh, all 13 seasons. Mm -hmm. uh, and these two, by the time this drops, uh, they might be HPA award winners for their work on season 12's opener, The Bear. And we are going to talk in depth about the opening, the, the bomber, uh, Color, the episode uh, that we filmed on that, Color Science for Geniuses. They already talked ad nauseum about that and how they collaborated with you guys. So that's gonna be fun to unpack with you. But uh, we also did, uh, how many seasons of Scrubs? Well, they went nine. I started in three, so. The so six seasons of Scrubs. Yeah. Uh, we did Undateable, Whiskey Cavalier, Cougar Town, so many, so many. Yeah. Bravo. <laughs> but so why I started this with Head of the Class, there's so much in there with TikTok, Instagram, Twitch, mm -hmm. all these different platforms. I, I learned from that <laughs> how much falls to you guys that maybe mm -hmm. I kind of thought in the back of my head did, mm -hmm. but there was me copying and pasting my niece's Twitch chats <laughs> so that you guys could enter them in to the VFX work that needs to go into the whole screen. Mm -hmm. I mean, could I ask for just a pedestrian breakdown of all the different roles inside of a VFX department? Sure. And, uh, you know, what you were alluding to was uh, graphics creation, which a lot of times will fall to the show's graphics department. Uh, sometimes it'll fall on us, uh, which you know we're happy to help out. Uh, it's a little bit of a non-traditional role for a VFX artist, but luckily it's something that, that we're fully capable of. Um, I think most of the time it falls on us. <laughs> yeah, you know, probably <laughs> more times. Create the graphics <laughs> from scratch and have them just look up on our phones, like you said. Sure, but as, as far as like more traditional roles, you know, you got you're tracking, you have your roto, you have your paint. Uh, and, you know, all, all of us here in, internally uh, are pretty much uh, good at all of that stuff. Um, in, in some bigger houses, you might have a guy that just does tracking. Um, you know, there's, there's various kinds of tracking, but, uh, you know, you might outsource a camera track for a particularly complicated shot. Um, you know, rotoscoping, is the creation of an alpha channel basically cutting something out of one shot and putting it on top of another shot uh, that would be rotoscoping if you're doing it by hand and using matting um, uh, you could also do that with keying in certain situations if something's on a green screen 
What else did I mention? Well, also I think Dylan's just the master at all these things, right? <laughs> so it's like, it's one of these things where like, when you become really good at these, at keying, at rotoscoping, at paintwork or something, or any of those oh, things, yeah. you're then able to find shortcuts and then you're able to do things a lot faster rather than having to, you know, say go to a bigger facility where one person does one thing and another person does another thing. So it's very like an interdisciplinary, you know, medium. And, and, and all that is just compositing. There's yeah. also the entire CG 3D aspect of things where, you know, you might have somebody just doing the modeling, somebody just doing the texturing, somebody just doing the lighting, somebody doing the rigging, somebody doing the animating. And that's the kind of stuff that generally has like a much bigger team uh, working to have one goal for one shot. And then that result will then go to a compositor who actually puts it in a shot. So there, there's many roles in, in something like 3D, something like compositing. It's, it tends to be more of a jack of all trades type of situation. And then it ends up with a VFX editor. And then it goes to a VFX editor, yes. <laughs> and the VFX editor, um, it's, it, they're the ones who take care of the IO. So the ins and outs of getting a shot from editorial, from the timeline to the artist so the artist can work on it. Then, then once it leaves the artist, it goes back to the VFX editor who will do a little quality control, let them know if everything's all right before they cut it in to the timeline again or give it to the client to cut into the timeline. So Carlo, you touched on something that gets mentioned a lot on the drop and especially in the Geniuses series, interdisciplinary. Mm -hmm. um, that's not just who we are as a company, it's even in each team. So the dailies team, for example, they all have their own specialties, interests, or passions, but they can swap in, help one another, bounce ideas off of each other. Like we mentioned, you've been here three years and you have always sung Dylan's praises for being an incredible teacher and building up his department. How do you guys, how did that happen? Like, you know, Dylan, I get it. You are, you're great in a lot of capacities, but like, how have you guys learned from that? How have you guys unpacked it? How do you, I mean, you're all good. It's so many things. So there usually has to be like a moment where you're struggling. <laughs> you know, you're working on a shot. You can't quite figure it out. You're keying this, you're rotoscoping that. Maybe it's not quite working the way you want it to. Maybe you shouldn't have rotoscoped, spent all that time rotoscoping when you could have just keyed it, you know? It's those moments where like, you're like, oh God, I spent all night on this. And like, if I just done these two things, then I could have just bypassed all of the other stuff that I spent, wasted a lot of time doing. So usually when we're in those moments, I'll just go and I'll ask Dylan, what, what, you know, what do you think I should do? Mm -hmm. Okay. And then from there, I kind of just follow like that trail. And I'm just like, okay, now I get it now, you know? And that's really how you learn. You have to go through that struggle. Yeah. You have to climb that mountain in order to like really learn something, you know? That's mm -hmm. really important. I think the other, the other thing we do a lot is share projects even after we're done. Yeah. Um, like if there's something like I know somebody's having trouble with and I know that, oh, I did it this simple way, you know, three weeks ago on this other show, I can give them that project. And I think it helps to look at how that was built mm -hmm. uh, on your own, dive into it, explore it, figure out what the artists did successfully and what shortcuts they took that maybe you're missing. Can I ask how you do that? Is it like math where you show the work? Like how do you dive into a shot and unpack how someone handled something? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it kind of is 
not that difficult to see the work once you get a project because you can see all the filters apply, all the, where all the keyframes are, where all the keyframes aren't more importantly, uh, what, uh, how things were layered uh, in, in Nuke, it's a little different because it's node-based, so you're looking at a node tree. Uh, for those who don't know, After Effects is layer-based, like Photoshop, where it's one image on top of an image on top of an image on top of an image. Whereas uh, Nuke, you basically have a pipeline and you have these nodes that pipe in effects or layers or, or whatnot into one tree that then comes out with a final result. I think like the, the major benefit with like a node-based versus layer-based workflow is with node-based, you can literally have like one effect. So you need to blur something. You drop in just one blur node, pipe it all in, right? Whereas when you're working with layer-based, sometimes you have to put it on all the layers and they end up, you know, it's, it's how it utilizes resources is different. But I can, I can see that. Like yeah. I, that actually, that paints a really good picture, but absolutely we're gonna need people on that one. <laughs> yeah, but, for sure, for sure. Uh, it's funny because Mike Streeter, who's our absolute dailies guru, in addition to being the editor of The Drop, um, he says the way he's been able to train, if he had to call a manual for dailies training, it would be called, sometimes this happens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it sounds somewhat applicable. Um, well, another question on, on the interdisciplinary function of all of this, because I think a lot of folks would never guess that we are a smaller VFX house. We are fast and we are good. Thanks, Dylan. <laughs> you're, sure, you're but thank you, Carlo. Thank you, Manmeet. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Cameron. Thank you, Joshua. Thank you. Other Joshua, thank you, Robert. Um, and the many folks that we're fortunate enough to contract with, but how did you start, or did you start imagining this all those years ago? Like, did you know that you could have a beast of a team? Did you know that if they were interdisciplinary that you could be more faster? Well, considering it was just me for at least 10 of the 19 <laughs> years I've been here, uh, you know, I kind of had to get that way pretty quickly to survive. Um, and, and yeah, that's, that's kind of what I've looked for in, in people to work with, is people that can adapt that, that mindset and that ability to, you know, think, think outside of the box. Like, I think a lot of effects artists have very step-by-step -step ways of doing everything. And a lot of times, if, if you just look at it critically, you can skip some of those steps, or at least find easier ways to do those steps than the traditional way. And, and I think uh, everyone that's come through here has been very good at, at picking up that kind of mindset. I actually recklessly compared it to running a red light at 3 a.m. in the Curiosity for Geniuses drop, where as a team, I think we're just not beholden to anything that no longer serves us. Mm -hmm. Be it software, a workflow, a training dynamic, any of those things where, look, a red light is absolutely meant to be precautionary in times when there are other cars coming on the road. But three o'clock in the morning, I'm just looking for the red light camera. Not actually, I can see that there are no other cars coming. This isn't really a rule that is serving me at that time. 
again, not promoting reckless driving. I, but. Th I think we make a right on red and then, and then do, do a U-turn and then make another right. <laughs> I don't know if we're like blowing right through it. Fair. Good call. Good call. So if you could start walking me through season 12, episode one of that bomber, because it was the two of you, I think, out here in this back parking lot mm -hmm. setting mm -hmm. up the, uh, I don't know how to put it otherwise, they looked like disco balls for the tracking shot or how they were basketballs actually they were basketballs <laughs> yeah. i remember a big shiny one that's the chrome ball yeah that's for on set so yeah we for, we did a couple tests first because we needed the russian bomber to look like you know it was in a field and we needed you know uh uh sam and callan to walk underneath it so we first did like a smaller scale test here right here in the parking lot just you know track you know putting uh, basketballs on c stands Mm -hmm. so that was kind of phase one, proof of concept, to see where we needed to go. And then from there, it became much easier to kind of translate that to, you know, the actual shots. Because I don't think at that point, we didn't, you haven't even got on set yet. No, no. Right. We were just making sure that the, the model was kosher, mm -hmm. uh, that three points of tracking would be plenty for what we were doing, mm -hmm. uh, which I think it was. Well, before we dive further into that, I think we missed that part of the process as well of the effects supervisor. Yeah, that's true. Uh, that's kind of uh, the first part of the step, uh, or the first step in the, the chain is to figure out how something's going to be shot. Uh, so a lot of times at the script stage, uh, we'll get asked, hey, can we do this? How do we do this? How much is this going to cost? And we, we try to figure that out and guide them as best we can. And then if it's a bigger shot on the day where they actually shoot it, uh, one of us will go out there, uh, make sure everything's going the way it should go. But more often than, than not, they have a good idea of what they're doing at that time, but there's a lot of questions and there's a lot of things that come up on the fly uh, that get changed or that they wanna ask and you know, it's our job to make sure that we get everything we need to accomplish the effect and that everybody feels comfortable that they've shot everything they need to and not done a whole lot more than they need to to get it done. Yeah, I think, Carlo, you talked on a panel one time where you like you actually helped me understand that better and broke it down that like a lot of times they don't need this big fancy crane that they just spent a ginormous portion of their budget on. You know, if, if they're... If it seems complicated, there's usually a much easier way to do it, you know? And that's why you have someone there with, you know, tens mm -hmm. of years of experience to shed some light on that. Because otherwise production is typically gonna make things complicated, you know, and ha actually create a lot more work for us than we needed, you know? One instance is always tracking markers. Putting tracking markers everywhere. <laughs> and then we always have to paint them out. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's amazing how many tracking markers you see sometimes. And it's like, we didn't need those at all. There's wow. enough texture in the shot to begin with. And that's just, you know, and then the crane thing. Do you, do you want to tell a story? Real quick? I, I won't say what show it yeah. was on, <laughs> but there was someone who was flying. Um, and at one point they were supposed to be flying close to the ground. So they put the actress on a harness that was, you know, lifted up off the ground with like a very small crane uh, and shot her flying around. Then uh, there was another scene where she was supposed to be flying several stories in the air. Uh, and I was like, okay, let's, let's shoot this now. And instead of shooting her 
just off the ground on that green screen, they had this huge expensive crane come in, lift her up six stories in the air outside of a window and then shot through the window, therefore getting reflections, more wires, and also moving trees in the background that now the wires had to be removed from in front of, uh, where if they would have just kept her where she originally was, it would have been a very simple shot. They've so. spent the money for the crane for the day already. They're gonna use it regardless of what you say. <laughs> I mean, she had a great story, right? <laughs> sure, sure she enjoyed it. All of that to, to get us back to this bomber then and how mm. much work it, it's, I mean, you in an ideal world, would you say you're also pre-production, not just post? Absolutely. Absolutely yeah. 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 So take me through how we got from the parking lot to that bomber in the air and then on the ground. Uh, so we got a pre-existing model of a Russian 1944 bomber and we went through and had to texture it, right? So we went through and kind of painted dents in it and had to put like, make the paint look stripped and just make it, made it look old, right? And then uh, brought that into, well, my software of choice is Cinema 4D and then I'll use a physical render engine called Octane. Cinema 4D is one of, you know, many uh, 3D softwares out there because it was a, a 3D model, right? And so we had to animate it in 3D. So there was no live action shots that were needed for uh, a portion of the air sequence mm -hmm. that we're in. So uh, there's Cinema 4D, there's 3DS Max, there's Maya. Those are kind of the, the big three. All that play nice, nice with Nuke or After yeah, Effects? Yeah, they do. So Nuke and After Effects are compositing software. So we would take those renders and then we, you know, beautify them and do what we need to do to make them look nice. Uh, in Nuke or in After Effects. Mm -hmm. So my software of choice for 3D stuff is Cinema 4D. And the big thing lately is, you know, uh, physical rendering, like real-time uh, creation uh, of what you're creating in the software. So like that's what Octane is for. So Octane will just be a window that shows me what it looks like in real time. So I don't have to render it and see what it looks like or have to just render a still frame out. I can see what it looks like uh, right there in the software. And it's a plug-in, you know, for two GPUs, like $14 a month, it's very affordable. Otherwise, 3D modeling and animation is such a uh, processor intensive uh, thing that you, mm -hmm. you wouldn't be able to see what's going on unless you sat there and waited for several minutes for every frame yeah. to render. Yeah, these utilize the GPU. So we got 3090s and it just, you know, it was great. <laughs> I can work very quickly. So from there, uh, I'll go through and just, you know, what they did on set, uh, what they did in post is that they did, they created an animatic for us, right? So just a temporary uh, representation for us to uh, piggyback on and kind of, you know, the the goal is always to make it look better. And the animatic is is based on a storyboard, but it's just a storyboard turned into a video storyboard. Yeah. Who does the storyboard? They're storyboard artists. So there's not usually like a back and forth or anything? Not really with the storyboard artists. Once it gets to that point, if something gets changed, we will just do a mock-up on our end. Mm. And then from there, yeah, I'll just, I'll match the animatic, you know, and, uh, and you know, hopefully get images over to, you know, Chris early so he can like see what he likes or doesn't like about it. Mm -hmm. And then we'll have to, you know, whatever notes he gives me, then I fire it off again. And I'll have, you know, I think, it definitely took a couple days, I think, for, for several of those shots. Mm -hmm. uh, but it came out looking really nice. Supervising producer Chris Molnar is a longtime friend and innovation collaborator to DFT. And he absolutely has his hand in every department. Um, 
but you've been partnered with him for a long enough time where what's that kind of communication like on something this giant? Well, Chris and I have been friends now for 13 years. So for us, it's a little bit different. Like we're, we're close enough that we'll just text each other back and forth. And it's, it's very, very easy and fluid. Uh, I can show him stuff uh, and usually get an answer right away. And, and at this point, I tend to know what he's going to say before he even has to say it. So <laughs> for that, it's, 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 a, it's been a good uh, working relationship, I think, for sure. So then was that, was that the whole of the air or did I interrupt? There was, yeah, I mean, there were other shots that we did too. Some that we, I mean, we, we, we used a couple different softwares for that whole sequence. Like some was just a plugin called Element 3D, uh, which, was, which we used for fighter jets and things like that. That worked out really well too. Element 3D is uh, from Video Copilot, and uh, what you can do with that is actually in After Effects, you can animate uh, a 3D object. Yeah. So if it's already been modeled and textured, uh, you can just bring it right into After Effects and manipulate it however you need to, versus going through the whole 3D rendering and octane process. So for the bomber, after it landed, uh, it's a much different process. Uh, what we did for that is actually build the skeleton of where the bomber was going to be. So just to be clear, there was no plane on the ground. No, there was no plane. There was a wheel, two wheels actually. Yeah, uh, there was. There were two wheels, um, and then a bunch of, you know, metal poles and a green tarp over the top and uh so when chris o'donnell is like looking up into what the trap door is real okay the, like the little <laughs> the little door is real because there's actually actors going up in there and there's a scene inside of it but it's it's basically that that front bottom end with the wheel is real there's a one rear wheel and then there's one propeller and then everything else uh is basically built with elements that Carlo rendered out, that we then put where they needed to go and assembled to make the rest of the plane. You so, also had some kind of like, like wooden panel there just to cast a shadow, because otherwise we'd have to do that ourselves. We still had to extend the shadow. Oh, we did? Yeah, so basically they, they had a roof that was supposed to be the plane, so it would look like there was something over top of all these actors instead of just bright sunlight. But it didn't quite extend the entire width of the wings or the length of the plane. So we did have to extend shadows out to the side. Yeah, it's important to mention too, I think a mixture a, a mixture of like, you know, real elements on set, real props uh, and CG, like always work together, you know? So Is, it's not just purely CG from scratch. Actually really quick, so would the VFX supervisor be a part of discerning which props are real or on set? Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I was part of that discussion. Um, you know, I think part of it also fell to what they could actually procure uh, physically to have there. Um, and, you know, then it was a matter of deciding which ones were the hero, the real propellers, or the, the real uh, tire. We could also talk about the chrome ball. Yeah. So the chrome ball is for when you're on set and you want uh, environmental lighting. Right, to use in 3D software. So that just picks up the lighting that day as they were shooting. So we can use that in the software and, and tell the physical render engine, Octane, 
to utilize that and bounce all the light around to make it look like it's sitting right there. So there's very little lighting that I have to do on my end once we take a picture of that chrome ball. But we actually didn't even use the chrome ball, huh? We just used like a wraparound uh, oh. image from your iPhone. Yeah, we did. This worked out really well too. Yeah, I carried around that backpack full of yeah. tripods and yeah. chrome balls <laughs> in 120 degree weather for nothing. Yeah, it was a, there was a heat wave going on. <laughs> well, uh, being greedy, if I could pivot to West Ham for Ted Lasso, where we actually did get to build a stadium out of like nothing there. Uh, yeah, we did. Um, you know, a lot of that fell on man meat, so I'll shout him out. Man meat! Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not entirely sure it, it was originally planned to become the stadium because there was no green screen or blue screen or anything involved. And there's about 100 people running back and forth that needed to be rotoscoped to accomplish that one. Um, but, uh, you know, I think getting that, uh, that stadium in there really increased the scope and the drama of that moment, for sure. Uh, it was just, uh, that one was a lot of manual labor, for sure. Yeah, I think we, we broke it down a little bit in one of, one of the Lasso episodes, but I mean, it just looked layer after layer, and I remember being in the room with you or on one of the calls talking about the curvature mm -hmm. of the stadium mm -hmm. and just, uh, minutia is not the right word, because it does all matter, but just the laborious nature of getting it right. I have a giant 85-inch TV, and I'm sitting there like, tell me it's not real. I can't see any. How is this not real? And that one, that one actually utilized um, actual photography versus uh, a CG rendered uh, model. What's that so. mean? What's the difference? So a CG rendered model would be completely computer generated, like the plane Carla was talking about. Whereas in this uh, sense, this is more of a, a matte painting uh, in old traditional, I guess they would be special effects or optical effects. They would use matte paintings uh, and, then, and then, you know, superimpose actors over something that a person generally actually hand-painted um, in the more modern sense a lot of times where we're taking actual photography throwing it together combining it to form uh, the image required uh, to put into a composite uh, in this case it was a stadium so we had various photos of West Ham that were assembled to create a plate which was then put in to represent the stadium. Yeah, they'll take a 360 image. They'll take like, you know, a plate here, plate there, plate here. And then we'll go through and stitch it. Or man meat went through and stitched it. And then we'll, what, what we'll do is that, you know, it's a, it's a spherical looking image. And then in Nuke, we'll basically uh, transform it so that it looks totally flat. What's great for that is that we could literally create any angle uh, and not have to create, recreate a new element. We could just keep using that same unwarped image, mm -hmm. right? And we could just tell it to scooch over, or scooch up, or scooch down. So in one of the points of this whole uh, genius series is the fact that I'm not the genius here. So I get to ask the, the naive questions, but can one of you just tell me what's a plate and what is stitching? And I, I feel like a lot of people listening are going to know that, but to break it down in a way that's just really pedestrian, what is a clean plate? A, a plate essentially is a layer. It's an image. Um, so if you're combining two images, Let's say you're taking 
uh, let's simplify it and say it's a newscaster in front, of, uh, in front of a weather mat. So that would be two plates. The weather mat would be plate one, the newscaster on a green screen would be plate two, and then all you're doing is keying out all the green that you don't want in plate two, layering it on top of plate one, and that's a composite. That's the most simple way I can think of describing it. No, that's great, the weather map especially. Yeah. And then what about stitching? So st stitching would be if you have several plates that you're using to make one plate, uh, let's say you're doing like a panoramic photo uh, and you don't have a panoramic camera, but you point the camera to the left, you point it in the middle and you point it to the right. Then you want to put all that together to make one panoramic image. You have to stitch it on the seams between the three photos you took. So is it ever a tug of war between your technical and creative brains? Uh, I think at a certain point, the technical part becomes reflexive. Uh, I think once you do stuff long enough, uh, you start to just know what button you have to push without thinking about it. Um, you know, I think that being said, you still sometimes have to use creative solutions in a technical sense to come up with the shortcuts, come up to, with the ways to get things done in the most efficient manner possible. Um, and, and doing all that leaves your, your brain more room for the actual creative artist work. Yeah, that's, visual effects is very much creative and technical, right? It, so, you know, it can sometimes be like this bottomless pit where you can try to figure out why things work the way they work, you know, and spend a lot of time learning certain things. Uh, maybe you didn't need to know why, uh, you know, how to like rig a character in Cinema 4D or something like that. Things that, skills you'll never really use in the future. I don't know I'm going with this. <laughs> well, it's, no, but it is interesting though, because even like you guys are beginning more and more to start marrying previs into VFX. Hmm. And, you know, Andrea has talked a lot about all of her work and having to rig and animate and texturize and all of these things in Unity or Unreal and then all the metadata that can and has come over, especially on the Lasso stuff, very especially on the Umbrella Academy stuff, mm. to the various different VFX departments. At least for me, it would feel like a tug of war between all of the technical front loading that needs to come in so that I could then do the creative portion of it. Yes. And so I think what you're saying is at least very relatable to me because I get frustrated if I can't figure out how to like, you know, control V and if it's not that simple for me, I'm not that interested in learning it. So yeah, being driven by curiosity is a big part of visual effects. I think we all have, kind of have our specialties for sure. But I think what's always interesting to me is when you meet people that are very, they're very technical, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and they're create, the, the creative part of them still kind of needs to be developed and vice versa. It can go mm -hmm. the other way too. So it's really important to be well-rounded in this business and it can take years. It can take a really long time yeah. before you're really good at both things. Well, and I think that's absolutely become a theme in this Genius series. Even with Duck and Curiosity for Geniuses, he's an engineer. He's been an engineer the majority of his career, and it's all about, well, I just, I wanted to know. And not everyone's going to necessarily look at what I built as a work of art, but the 
curiosity behind it, the technology behind it. You know, he's taught his kids how to build computers from scratch, not just Raspberry Pis. Like, he's built onset, near set dailies, onset color from scratch in like a garage, in a truck, whatever. And those are all things that then he gets to be creative with those things, but it is a back and forth on that side of the brain. And then even with the color science for geniuses, the amount of software similarly that goes into Resolve, into even some of like the beauty fixes that, I, there's just so many different ways in which your brains, it's a dance. Mm -hmm. Less of a tug of war, maybe that's a better way to put it. It's a dance and you're just constantly learning new steps. Yeah, no, it's it's a real kind of, you know, I mean, your brain is just always working all the time. It can be exhausting. It can be mentally exhausting at times. So for you guys, is there a similarity of like film going to digital and, you know, there was also painting with light on set in color and you're talking about hand painting mats. Like, mm -hmm. do either of you wish that like you had come up during those times or? Oh, yeah, I would much rather have done like old school special effects and and actually gotten to figure out how to you know have the eggs uh cook on uh, sigourney weaver's countertop and ghostbusters that kind of stuff was always fascinating uh you know unfortunately i mean you know there's still special effects departments that get to do fun stuff don't get me wrong um, but so much of that is just goes straight to the effects these days I think I'm still kind of figuring that out. I mean, when I think of where we are now, when I think about you know the future, I'm really fascinated by where we're going with like AI and machine learning and all that. I feel like 10 years from now, I'll look back and be like, man, I really, I, I really wish we had that before because things used to take us you know weeks mm -hmm. <laughs> to do, and now they're going to take us a couple minutes. So. Also, he's never seen a movie before 2012. I don't. Think. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> That's not true. Oh crap! I had a great question. Oh. Not so much a great question, a re-traumatizing of all of your hardest oh, shots. Um, so, uh, and I think we can do this in an honoring fashion that highlights your work, that highlights the collaborative process. So I'm gonna keep it as light and positive as humanly possible, but I do think it's worth talking about. Carlo, I think we gotta talk about the infamous poop shot. That For was Dave a lot of work. One. Yeah, you know, it's interesting how, like, when the conversation begins on how to make someone look like they're pooping, uh, it starts off, like, very simple, and it's like, oh, you know, the conversations, I think, in the very beginning where we want, like, a huge blast. <laughs> yeah. You know, this needs to be huge, this needs to be epic, and there I was, you know, doing, you know, all these liquid stimulations, and, like, then that, we just opened up Pandora's box, I think, with, like, the first couple versions, and then the conversation became much bigger. And yeah. then all of a sudden, people are sending Google images to each other, like in, via email. We want the poop to look like this, and we want it to look like that. And it was just, it, it became a big shot all of a sudden, right? Mm -hmm. I, I was filming myself dumping Whoa. melted chocolate ice cream oh. into a bowl. <laughs> okay, that, that, we that, that danced a real line of where it was going, Dylan. We, in the end, we had to film elements, real elements, uh, in tandem with the, a CG uh, uh, poop machine that I had created and composited okay if we if we can go one more round okay, with you I, I, yeah. do we pick do we pick the glowing hands or the crying blood oh the crying blood is tough i'd say the glowing hands glowing hands more going on okay yeah well, you want to talk about glowing hands manifest yes manifest glowing hands 
another Mount Everest. Yes, yes. So I think a big hurdle there was that we, there was you know multiple vendors working on the show, so we had to, we found it after a couple of versions, oh, we need to match ours to what people have done, the work that was already done for the episode. So as soon as we had that line of communication. That's not rare either, right? No, that's, that's pretty common. <laughs> yeah. You know, once we had that line of communication, you know, really solidified, then yeah, we went through, did it in Nuke, uh, you know, there's something in Nuke called smart vectors. Smart vectors are fascinating because you can literally just, you know, as soon as you turn it on and the shot goes, anything will just stick to the shot. It's really interesting. Uh, and so once we get like a handprint in there and glow effects and all that, and just run a smart vector on it, then you have a really nice looking glowing hand. Well, and, and part of the challenge with the glowing hands was that uh, they were shot different ways depending on the situation. So if you're looking at the hand glowing, it's basically just a shot of a hand. He, what he does is he applies the glow with the smart vector and it looks like the hand's glowing. Uh, when there were shots where you were not seeing the front of a hand, the actor was holding a flashlight oh, yeah. that is casting light on him to give the reactive lighting of the glowing hand. But it's overlighting the hand itself and actually blowing out the detail in the hand. So he had to go back in and reconstruct the hand itself and put a hand back in there and then make that glow. So that, yes. that's kind of where the bigger challenge, I think, late. Yeah, we basically had to bring back texture of the hand as it glows. Wow. <laughs> so it's like, you know, I think I took a picture of just my own hand and used that. All our hands are famous, man. Yeah, I know. They are. <laughs> <laughs> what have been some of your most challenging or labor, like, I don't know if laborious or collaborative is the best word. I mean, I think the most challenging things are always the things that I think are going to be so simple. Uh, and then uh, it just opens up this hornet's nest of different opinions on like physics itself like there's there's been a shot where i'm just adding a dot of a golf ball just a golf ball flying through the sky and it falls on the ground and then it rolls you'd be amazed how many different opinions you can get on how a golf ball should yep. <laughs> slow down then speed up what frame it should sl start slowing down, what frame it should start. And, and this is a two pixel white dot that, you know, first, the first uh, version of the shot probably took 20 seconds. Uh, and then uh, it was like version tw 24, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. What, what happens a lot with that kind of stuff is like you do things correctly as like you watch videos of it and use like how it would look in like real time, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And, but that never seems to fly, and then all of a sudden we're breaking those rules, you know? Yeah. yeah. Like, I think um, uh, in the, uh, the air shots for the bear, I think there's actually two angles of sunlight, of moonlight, actually. One coming from the right, but the moon's coming from the left side, because <laughs> it just looked better in the shot. Easter eggs. The moon had to be somewhere because of continuity, but if it was there, you wouldn't see the plane. It would be completely backlit, so there had to be a second light source yeah, to so actually show the plane. You gotta, yeah, so sometimes it involves just breaking rules like that to make things look better for the shot or for just creative purposes. So what do you guys think is, well, you mentioned AI, you mentioned how much further along we're gonna be in 10 years. Are you guys seeing a benefit to a deeper collaboration with Previs and 
yeah. you know, obviously everything that we have going on with Cinecode, Andrea, Gregory, etc. The better roadmap we have uh, when we start what we do, uh, the easier the process is going to be and the more room there is going to be to be creative and, and really, you know, beautify what we're working on and, you know, being on the same page with the producers and the creators from the beginning is so valuable because otherwise you go through round after round every time it's shown to a different person there's a new opinion there's a new uh, piece of information there's there's something that gets added that makes us go back and sometimes start from scratch and and I think if we know the target it's it's just so much easier to hit it yeah now Dylan nailed it I mean it's it just gets the conversation started very early on and previous is just going to grow because of that because you know that's where visual effects begins right uh, and then a lot of times we'll even reuse those elements or those assets from previous throughout visual effects as well mm -hmm. so once we're started from the previous portion then it flows much more easily into visual effects you know and that's that's huge can I ask a taboo question about beauty fixes sure Hmm? How much any given show doesn't matter. How much any given show would you say beauty fixes are beginning to permeate a show? There's not a single show that doesn't have a beauty fix. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> this is not. Happening. Yeah, uh, you know, sometimes it's it's like you know just an incident. Somebody has a blemish that week. Mm -hmm. Just take care of it, or somebody just their their makeup in a certain lighting just doesn't happen to land right and it just casts a funky shadow got to take it out and then you know there's there's things that you would think uh you know like crow's feet or this or that but just little things little touch up that you know back in the day before hd like makeup would completely cover that but nowadays with 4k you either see the the blemish or you see the makeup and, mm -hmm. and we'll just have to give it a little help in the end. And this kind of moves towards, you know, de-aging shots too. <laughs> Making people just look younger and, you know. Do we do that yet? Yeah. yeah. We've done that. We've done uh, a little bit of shrinking of ears and noses, uh, a little oh. bit of, uh, you know, reshaping some jawlines. Uh, putting faces on other people's heads. Yeah, done all that. So like your plastic surgeons in the digital world. Yeah, yeah. it's usually for like stunt people though. You know, we'll put the actors on the, the actor's face on the stunt people for a lot of situations. I mean, these are all, this is why, this is why <laughs> I wanted to have this because I just, you know, until I actually get proximity to it, I wouldn't, you know, like there's lots of shows like MacGyver, Hunter for Hire, Heart and Heart to Heart, like all of these shows that I grew up on, and I was like, that's not really them, because they didn't paint out their faces, they didn't swap them. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so now I've it just I didn't naturally make that jump that I was like, oh well, that's why you don't notice anymore. <laughs> no, com computers have, are now intertwined with filmmaking like all the way through. For you guys, what inspires you now, like? You know, I know you do a lot of challenges or like you have you have this thing to continue growing your own skills and 
creativity, but like what challenges and inspires you guys? I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I get excited when I can do something, you know, that looks really cool quickly. You know, if I can get yeah. something, a good look, 20 minutes, an hour, uh, then I'm like, oh, that was great. You know, because I just know that like five years ago, that could have taken me a couple days. <laughs> you know, so it's just like I've clearly grown and utilized these skills and, you know, just doing more complicated things with them all the time, all the time. It is, it is, uh, I would agree. It's it, the thing that is inspiring is finding ways to do things that other people don't necessarily utilize and uh you know in innovating even within just a software that everybody uses but just using it a little bit differently and then getting other people excited to do that is is i, I would i would say that is inspiring so we're growing fast how do you approach training onboarding assimilating getting and keeping the communication on well uh you know Onboarding, you kind of just have to give people shots and, and see how they do. Um, you know, luckily, what we do is a very definable product in the end. So it's it's usually pretty easy to tell what someone's strengths and weaknesses are pretty early on um, in the process, and and then you can see where somebody might need a little more training, or you can see where okay, somebody maybe doesn't have. The same mindset um, you know there's a lot of a lot of tinkerers out there that'll sit there and work on a shot for two weeks and you know that's there's nothing wrong with that uh, but uh, you know for for television schedule it's it's not quite uh, not quite what we need to do here so um, you know I think I think quality and 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 you know mindset are very apparent after like one round of working with somebody. Yeah, that was very well said. Because <laughs> he said, I, I was picturing my first show reel ever. <laughs> and I think I spent a week on one shot, you know. It's honestly, honestly not about the show reel. A lot of times I think the more impressive things on the show reel, the less I know about the artist because I know 13 people spent a month doing those shots. I don't know what that person did. Yeah. With his showreel, I knew every single thing yeah. he did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's for sure. If you see, like, you know, someone's showreel and it's just, you know, a shot from Transformers and it's like, well, we know that, that movie was a global effort. Yeah. Uh, what was the work that you did? You know, if yeah. you're able to break it down and show every kind of layer, then that's a good way to show that you, you know, you did the rotor, you did the key, mm -hmm. you did the compositing. You did, you know, I don't know, beauty pass, whatever. Um, that shows that, you know, you're, you're, you're showing people what you're able to do. I mean, Declan Lowney on the Lasso Rap episode really broke down how huge of an upside there was. He praised you guys left, right, and sideways for giving him the ability, for giving the entirety of production the ability to go beyond daylight hours by taking out the window from Rebecca's office and turning it into a blue screen, they didn't have to rush. They didn't have to, you know, match the sun and all these different, they didn't have to deal with glares. They didn't have to deal with continuity. Like I didn't, I remember the, the camera tests and I was like, that seems weird. Why are they doing that? And once he said the practical onset, this is why I was like, Oh, you know, but there were how many scenes in that office this season? 
Uh, and so, about a million. <laughs> every episode. But I mean, and that's an important distinction. Barnstorm does a hell of a job on Richmond's stadium. Um, but then we're everything else. Like, mm. they do amazing. They are bar on hands down, the crowd work folks. They are amazing. But we then, we're doing everything else. So walk me through some of, because there were a lot. I mean, mm. how many shots per episode would you say on average? Over 200. Yeah. Because we're talking a lot of phone comps. We're talking Rebecca's office. We're talking anything on a TV. Like, one of my favorite things was when... Um, uh, Isaac, the captain, throws the chair. Oops, in it. Like, all of that is you guys. So, but I know I'm missing stuff. Walk me through some of it. Uh, well, I would say the biggest thing about that episode was just the fact that they were going to a lot of locations they don't normally go to. Are you talking and, about 209, the beard yeah, episode? Yeah. For instance, when they go to a club, it's just a black window when they shot it. Uh, but we had to make it look like they were actually in the middle of the city. So we had to add the skyline outside. And the same thing when uh, they go to the flat of the seamstress. That's all that skyline is added after the fact. Um, the fire escape is added. Um, the hotel. Yeah. Outside the hotel is just a street, you know. Yeah. But we had to put it, it in the street. It wasn't even a street. Outside the hotel, uh, there's one scene where Beard walks into some, you know, automatic doors. Uh, the entire street out there and everything past those automatic doors he just made and put in there. So, a lot of shots hopefully nobody noticed. That was a lot of banter work though, yeah? Oh yeah, any, mm -hmm. any phone, uh, by the time we were done with the season, I think every single phone screen was replaced. Yeah. Wow. All right, well, I'm gonna ask you guys this. What else do you wish or want people to know about VFX that is just generally misunderstood or not common knowledge? I would say that I would like people to know that not everything needs to be purely VFX and that, you know, it is, it is really easy just to put someone in a room with a green screen and then replace it all. Uh, but there's, there's still something to be said for integrating it with uh, some practical elements and some, some common sense and clever thinking that can get you out of a crazy visual effects sequence that's millions of dollars. Sometimes you can, you can avoid all that just by, just by being clever and, and really thinking about what you're doing before you do it and not just throwing someone in a green. You know, it, it's interesting because I remember being on sets when I was, you know, when I was just starting out as a visual effects artist and like not entirely understanding what I was doing. I wasn't quite a professional yet. I was say in the first couple of years of my career. And uh, I just, you know, remember thinking like, oh, it's just all going to be CG. Like I wasn't really thinking about things from start to finish, right? I wasn't thinking about like, we, weren't, we hadn't decided what was going to go in the background yet. We hadn't, we hadn't had these conversations that were just crucial. And it just led to just things getting drawn out forever. Planning. <laughs> it's about planning. 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 But I, I just remember trying to do this when I was just not quite there yet. And things just going horribly wrong. <laughs> you know? Whereas now, once we get the, started, the conversation started very early, things just end up going 
much smoother in the app. I actually wanted to ask you guys, um, are there any questions that you would ask of me of like pedestrian understanding of it or how we sometimes have to relate things to a client or? I, I do have a question. Yeah. Why do people think everything needs to be green if there's a visual effect involved? That's a great question. And I actually wondered that myself because I've heard you guys talk about gray screens and mm -hmm. blue screens. Um, I think there was, you know, no names, but there was like somebody wearing a busy pattern shirt and the hair was wild and there was like a TV in the background and just there was no screen and you had to deal with that. Yeah, that's the one time I wish they did put a green screen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I just think a lot of people uh, overuse green um, in general. They're like, they hear the word VFX and they think something in the shot needs to be green. The only time you need a green screen is if you're trying to separate the thing in front of it from the background. The only time that you need the color green or blue or whatever you're using to create a mat is when you need the thing in the foreground to be separate from the background. What's the preference? As Blue? far as color? Yeah. Oh, it enti entirely depends on what's in front of the screen. So obviously if someone's in a blue shirt and blue jeans, you don't want them in front of a blue screen. Uh, green is kind of where the industry standard is because you don't see a lot of people in a bright green mm -hmm. outfit. Um, Can you have a pink screen? You could have a pink screen, but I would only recommend it if the thing in front of it was green. Or because, yellow? Uh, or yellow, yeah. You basically want the screen to be as different from the thing in front of it as possible. There's so, red screens. That's a thing. Really? Yeah. Well, I was going to ask, like, Andrea's Cinecode video. Like, she's in all black, but then what's behind her is pink, but I think that was a green screen, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yep. That was a green screen. I mean, if it was a pink screen, we wouldn't have had to do anything. But. There you go. <laughs> Carlo, questions? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I'd like to know, you know, in the in this world where previs is now becoming crucial, and for a client who's never even heard of previs before, but who's been working in this industry for 20, 30 years, uh, how do you... How do you explain to them and how do you sell them on pre-visualization? That is an ongoing challenge and education and conversation um, because it, the, the biggest issue is whose budget does it come out of because it's not yet a line item mm -hmm. for any department. And so you have VFX supervisors fighting for it. You have DPs fighting for it. You have producers fighting for it it's just it really runs the gamut because it serves all departments from writers to producers directors costume lighting dp every single you know i mean even set decorations and set design like especially too with something like umbrella academy and to have a lighter of the set they can then discern based on needs they identify in previs if a column needs to come out and be removable. Because you can have within, even the LiDAR that's on your iPhone now, you can have accuracy up to 0.2 millimeters. 
And so you are pretty certain where that camera needs to be with safety viz. People like COVID safety officers were leveraging it so that they could actually have the mini map on their call sheet so that you knew exactly which part of the building or the room or the holding area that you needed to stay in and be in because there was enough space for you. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's just a ginormous conversation. So, but then you have other shows where it's literally the VFX people fighting for that in the budget because like you said earlier, the sooner you get everyone on the same page on how to shoot something what should the effect look like? How are we going to shoot it to make it look like that? Do we need the thing that you think we need to shoot it that way to make it look like that? It's conversation. But then we also have another show where the DPs fought for it because we've partnered with a software that actually literally lets you treat it like a game engine. We'll make the unique assets, bring the characters' faces in to all of, like what would just be standard elements, you can now put the actors in their costumes in this environment that you can begin manipulating and blocking mm -hmm. before you hit set. Mm -hmm. Like Previs really just saves you time and gets everybody on the same page. Otherwise you're gonna literally pay for it later. But trying to ask, watching those people whose, whose budget is gonna take the hit um, and it's not a hit, it's a savings in the end of it, but especially during COVID when so many things had to change, I think it was a collaborative tool for VFX, for costume, for directors, for editorial, for people literally, honestly, to keep working. And I don't think we talked about that enough in the pandemics episode, but that was one of the tenants that kept people working. That was a pretty good bridge. Guys, I hope this was fun for you. <laughs> anyway, Amos started to freeze. Artemis started to whine. I think they called it. That's it. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to see you next time on The Drop. Thanks for watching.